Carrie, we're going to start with a really important question. We need to know, girl, where you got your jacket. <laughs> it's a very important question. White House black market. Sounds like a good one. And then another second very important question. Do you have a favorite color? Um, it's either like a fuchsia pink or blue. Fuchsia pink. I like that. I bet it looks good on you, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, tell us one of the funniest things that one of your kids has done over the years. Okay, so I got a chance to think about this one. My kids do a lot of funny things. But one time when Andrew, he must have been like no older than three. He was probably probably three, two and a half or three. And we were playing this game called Bible something. And it had Bible questions, right? So he would get the easiest questions because he's the youngest. And so we asked him, Andrew, here's your question. What did Adam and Eve take a bite out of in the garden? Oh, no. And he went, I don't know, a sandwich? <laughs> I'll never forget that one. Let's go back. Let's start that story. We thought, I think well, we need to teach our son a little bit more Bible. Um, what, we have a, a number of teens in our congregation. Is there like a piece of advice you'd want to give to some of our teen women here in the audience? Yeah, I think the advice that I'd want to give is, I mean, I, I spoke about this, but for you teenagers, go to the scriptures to be in relationship with God. Um, don't just see them as something that you learn from or, you know, hopefully your, your parents are teaching you the Bible um, at home, you're learning it at church. And that's fantastic, and it's good for you to get in a routine reading your Bible every day, but go to it to meet Jesus there, not just to check it off a list or learn, learn more for your head. Go to it to really be with Christ. That's good. How did uh, you and John end up in Dubai? How did that process come about? Um, yeah, so when we were at Capitol Hill Baptist, we actually, my husband was an assistant pastor there, and Mark Dever was kind of training him for the pastorate, and we went on a missions trip to eastern Turkey. We went to a place called Diyarbakir, and when we were there, we just really got a heart for Muslims, for reaching Muslims, but we thought that John's calling was really to preach and you do that in English. If you go overseas, we thought you're doing church planting, which means one-on-one -on -one ministry. You have to take years to learn the language. And then to be able to preach in the language, it's years later. Um, and so we thought, no, he's called to preach. And um, so we kind of put that on a shelf. But I used to pray every week. For, for missions, I would have one day a week that I prayed for missions, and I would pray, Lord, send us. And I would say, I know you're not going to, God, um, because John's called to preach, but I ju I'm just praying that you would send us. And this opportunity came up in Dubai, and um, Mark Dever was flying through there and came home, and John was actually looking at a church in Texas. He was speaking to those elders, 
And Mark said, well, you could go there or you could go to Dubai. And we were both like, yes, let's go to Dubai. So that's how it came about. Oh, I love it. Well, how did you and your husband decide that that, that kind of international church planting versus that stateside? Like, how did, was it just your drive and his at the same time? Or how did you come to that mutual understanding? Yeah, well, he really had a heart for missions, too. Yeah. Said. Okay. Yeah. And he, um, so when, when he was in seminary, we would pray for unreached people groups. We just, we had like cards from the IMB or something. And every night we would pray for a different unreached people group with the kids. And so we just had a developing and we were getting to know missionaries. And we would think, wow, they feel really called to this specific people group. Isn't it amazing what God does? And so we definitely had a heart for missions, um, but I think John thought probably we're going to be senders rather than um, goers. And when this came up, there was no question in John's mind. He loved the idea of going to the Muslim world. Um, and can you just elaborate a little bit on UCCD and how it's an international church and how that's particular to the Dubai area too? Yeah, so... Um, there, there are actually international English-speaking churches, evangelical churches, kind of all over the world in these big cities. And because people go there who speak English to do commerce or to work there, and so these, these churches um, are really helpful for people. And the, the beauty of them, and, and in particular the one in Dubai, but I think this is true in all international cities, is that, um, that you can speak to people. I can go to the grocery store and speak to somebody from an unreached people group. I mean, I, um, one time I was getting my nails done and was with this Chinese woman, and she said, and I brought Christmas cookies. It was Christmas time. And, um, and she said, um, and I was telling her, like, what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why I brought the cookies, so I could talk to her about this. And um, I was telling her what we celebrate, and she goes, oh, that's what that baby's doing in the middle of all those animals. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and let me tell you what he went on to do. And so I was able to share the gospel with this woman who had never heard the gospel before, and then got her a Bible in her language, and she's moved on, but she has a Bible. So um, there are opportunities like that all the time. So our ministry obviously has to be focused mainly in the church, but the people who, you know, John is preaching to every Sunday are going out. So he, he makes it a point to tell them, this is your job. Go out and share the gospel with the local people. Go out and share the gospel with people who haven't heard it before. Yeah, that's great. Well, the difference for us is we are a primarily white church, um, and it's a great opportunity to witness to the nations who come to the U of A, though, so that's where our little area is. What are insights or tips that you can share with us about how we can be more hospitable and unified in Christ across cultural barriers? Yeah. Um, I would say, do it. <laughs> I would say, um, do lots of hospitality. Most cultures that are not Western cultures are much more communal, and they love being with one another, 
and they're with one another a lot. So if you have people here from other cultures, they're going to feel a real need for community. And it's a great opportunity to invite them into your home and have meals with them, have other believers over to do hospitality together. You can partner with, with one another in this way. And, um, and I would say you don't have to learn even their religious background. You don't have to learn all about their cultures. You just have to make sure you know the gospel clearly and can speak the gospel clearly. And you, what you want to, what you, what you want to do is get these people into the scriptures because that's what's going to transform and that has the power to save, you know, Second Timothy. Um, and so, w- once you do some hospitality and have these people into your home um, and have them get to know your family, get to know your friends, you you want to ask them, do you want to read the Bible together? And a lot of these people, I mean, they'll be thrilled to do that. So I think that that's the way. And the way to just stay united when you've got different cultures in your church is focus on the scriptures. Like, make the gospel central and, and preach and teach from the scriptures. Because the scriptures cross cultures, um, that it's the eternal word of God. So you don't need to change them or soften them or anything else. Um, you just need to stick to them. You have had to cross cultural barriers even with the music that you've listened to recently too. So all of those skill sets, now you've been able to apply them to Andrew's music, right? Very good. Um, how has living in an Islamic kind of culture dominated, kind of that it's dominated by that, affected you? And how has that changed any way in which you might minister to people or care for your own self or your family? Yeah. Uh, so many ways. I mean, it's, it's, it affects the way I dress when I'm there. It affects, um, it affects the way I talk to people. But, um, but I think the main thing is it just makes me so thankful for knowing Christ Because you just see the emptiness. I mean, you can see it here, too, with people who don't know Christ. I just saw a movie, a really bad movie. I don't mean bad in the sense of, well, anyway. It was a bad movie with with my son because he wanted to see it last week. And it just showed the vapidness of living without Christ. There's no meaning to it. So it was kind of an existential movie. Um, And... That's what we've just, we're faced with every day because Christianity is such a small minority there. And evangelical, of course, truly born-again Christianity is just tiny there. And so you're faced every day with people, you know, trying to live life with absolutely no meaning to it at all. So I think that's the biggest thing. It's just made me so thankful for the Lord that I could know him. And it's made me, you know, want to share him with others more. And you do spend your time sharing him more with others. And you do that in so many various ways, I know. But particularly in your studies of scriptures with other women, you have that. How do you 
teach the Bible to women who come from all these various cultural contexts and backgrounds, new believers, seasoned believers? How do you do that? Yeah, it's, it's such a joy because if you just stick to the scriptures, it's like I said, stick to the scriptures, point people back to the scriptures. So if you're in a small group Bible study and someone says something that's way over here, you just say, oh, now, what, what, what do you think this verse says? So you just keep pointing back to the scriptures and, um, and just watch women rejoice in it. So it hasn't been a hard thing at all. But you don't bring cultural baggage into it. Um, that's, the thi- that's the thing that divides. If you bring cultural baggage... If you add something to Scripture, some of you have done Simeon Trust, staying on the line. If you add something to Scripture or you subtract from Scripture, that's where you're going to get into trouble. But if you really stay on the line of Scripture and you're making sure, okay, I'm, I'm getting the meaning of this verse that this author intended for his original audience, then you're going to unite people. You shared with us in a couple different ways about the struggles that you've endured with Andrew and all the things with his um, bipolar. Um, what what would counsel would you have if people have a loved one here dealing with maybe not just that but any other kind of mental illness to help keep it gospel focused when they're trying to address those issues? Yeah. I mean that that's such a hard question because um, you know people are all different. And, um, and so I think what, what I've found with my son, sometimes if I try to encourage him with something besides the gospel, it just drives him deeper because he, he sort of wants to argue back. No, it's not, you know, okay, I'm not okay. I, you know, um, he'll get very... Uh, it's almost self-loathing. And, um, and if I tried to say, no, like, I love your music. You're so creative. You know, he'll, he'll say all these other things to argue against that. And so what I've determined to do is pray that the Lord would pour out his love on him and tell Andrew that. And, and speak the gospel to Andrew at every opportunity um, and not, not be super quick to point out his sin. He knows that he's a sinner. He struggles with that. It discourages him terribly. He is a professing believer. I'm so thankful for that. Um, but he, he, you know, sees his sin very largely and so I try not to be quick to point those things out, but I, I'm trying to be quick to encourage him with the gospel and speak the gospel to him. And, like, I just um, sent him a text with part of His Mercy is More, some of those lyrics. So I just typed in a text and, um, and sent it to him. And I'm trying to do stuff like that often and then just listen to him and tell him, you know what? God is with you, and he loves you dearly, more than I could even ever love you. So that's how I... Living your life in um, 
a little on stage as a ministry family. Um, people see you and they know some of the things and you had to take a leave of absence so people knew something was going on with Andrew. If anybody did find out about it, has it ever been suggested that maybe there was a, a demon possession or something like that going on with him? Um, and if so, how, how would you handle that if anyone said that to you? Yeah, um, no, no one has said anything like that, I think, to either of us. Um, Andrew um, had kind of a radical conversion experience that we think was truly conversion. Um, so he can't be possessed by a demon if the Holy Spirit lives in him. Um, but at the same time, you know, mental illness like this has a spiritual component and a mental component and a physical component. And we know um, John's father had bipolar. So this, it, it's, it's a biological thing. So um, people with bipolar generally need to be on medication for the rest of their lives. Um, and that's always a struggle. And I think we need to deal with it as though it's spiritual, emotional, physical, all of those things. And I very much believe that it's a satanic attack uh, on our family. I mean, yeah. Satan took us out of ministry for, for a year. Of course, God superintends all of that. He took us out of ministry for a year, too. So I do believe that there's a spiritual component to it and that... that my, my poor son is attacked by demonic forces. I fully believe that. And so what do I need to do? I need to preach the gospel to him and preach the gospel to myself and pray for him. And I do specifically pray, sometimes even more than others, that God would protect him from the forces of evil, that God would protect him from satanic forces. So... And the Lord has provided your family with various encouragers and resources in your local church, but also in the universal church and in relationships there. But do you have any resources that you would recommend to anybody who might be dealing with that themselves or with somebody that they love dearly? Um, yeah, Michael Emlett, have you heard that name? Emlett has written a book, I think in conjunction with somebody else, and it's called something like descriptions and prescriptions or something like that. And it's basically a book that talks about how this is, there's a biological component and a spiritual, you know, mental component to these things. And I would highly recommend if you think someone close to you has either bipolar or schizophrenia, I would, and even I think it's good for depression too. Um, I would highly recommend that book. I, I really like the CCEF stuff, so I've, I've read a lot of that. And I would ask John Henderson if he has other recommendations for that. But I think the more you can know about whatever it is that your loved one is dealing with, um, probably the, the better equipped you are to, to deal with it. And you got to be careful, because there's some... Like a friend sent me... Um, something from, from a, a camp that completely rejects any kind of medication um, for bipolar or schizophrenia. And basically, they don't say it's demon possession. They just say it's sin. And 
of course, there's sin involved in it, just like there's sin in my heart. But sometimes someone with one of these disorders, they can't deal with sin in their life until they get their head straight. I mean, if you haven't dealt with this, you don't know. But these people cannot think rationally. They cannot think um, like a sane person can think. So you confront them with their sin, and they're either going to deny it or go deeper down into a horrible depression. Um, And so they need to be at a certain level before they can work on the sin in their hearts. You talked about waiting and Habakkuk waiting on the Lord. Is there an example you can give us of a wrong way that we wait on the Lord? Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, I think, you know, we see Habakkuk, remember in the beginning when he's crying out to the Lord, but we saw that evidence there that he was, he was waiting for an answer. He was expecting that God is just, God is right, I just got to figure this out kind of thing. I, I, the Lord's got to tell me um, how to think about this, really. And I think if we... Um, are crying out in anger against the Lord or questioning his goodness, I think we can wait wrongly and we can waste a lot of time. Um, And it's hard not to do. But I'm not one of those people, like you'll hear people say, oh, it's okay to be angry at the Lord. I don't think we really see that justified anywhere in Scripture. Um, And... So it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to struggle with this stuff. But if you feel yourself getting angry and bitter, then um, you need to really dig into the scriptures and look at Job and look at Habakkuk, um, look at 1 Peter, um, and think about how, I mean, look at James, the first chapter of James, um, and and ask the Lord for wisdom without doubting, without doubting his goodness and his sovereignty. So I think if that, that's not specifics, but I think those are some ways we can wait, like complaining and bitterness is, yeah, Brad you know, a has, tendency that I have. Yeah, Brad has taught us at UBC that the, the voice of lament is complaining to God, not about God. Yeah. That's a, a helpful distinction. Yeah. But. Um, I'm going to kind of mix these two together a little bit, but a sister writes that she feels guilty or foolish for acknowledging suffering when she looks at others that feels like their suffering is more legitimate. How can she be honest with that? Or for those who may not be suffering, to prepare for suffering but not live in fear of coming suffering? Yeah. Um, That is an excellent question because suffering is so personal, isn't it? Um, it's personal to each one of us as an individual. And there can be women in our midst and men who are suffering internally um, without some, something circumstantial. Um, we can be suffering with depression or just, we have, a, I mean, I think I just used to, life was hard for me. I mean, before any of this happened, this is like probably when I was um, a young adult. I think life was just hard for me, and I had to struggle through things. And so I've 
I've struggled through being single for a time, you know, until my 30s. I've struggled through, I've got three little babies, and I used to be a lawyer. I knew the answers, or I knew where to find them, and now I've got no answers. So there can just be struggles in day-to-day life, and we shouldn't discount that. Um, And no, so no, you don't need to feel guilty if someone else, you know, has lost a loved one or is going through something that you think, wow, that's real difficulty, and I feel like I'm struggling right now. No, you shouldn't feel guilty. The Lord puts in your life what you need for that time and will grow you through that. And I think, um, yeah, no, the, the key to not fearing the circumstances that will come is to fear the Lord. Um, and, and that means loving him deeply, looking at him with awe. He's not going, you don't need to fear because he's not going to send something into your life that you can't handle with him by your side, um, with him working in you. Um, so that, that's why you shouldn't fear it because he's good. And so maybe if you find yourself fearing what may come, Really dig into the scriptures and see the goodness of God in the scriptures and his love for his children. Um, You obviously know a lot about John Calvin because we quoted that hymn a few times in your talks. Should women read John Calvin or other deep theology? Why or why not? Okay, well, that's a little, it's a little deceptive. I did notice that I quoted him three times, like (laughs) once in each of the talks, maybe. Um, I, um, I I do love John Calvin, but I don't know him. I haven't studied him that well. I just, I was writing on Romans, and I thought, I got to read Calvin on Romans. Uh, that's the Bible study that I'm writing right now. And, um, and then I was like, this stuff is so good. I'm going to see what he says on Habakkuk. And wow, it was fantastic. So look at that big smile. So... Um, I think that you should, wait, is it Haley? Emily. 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 Talk to Emily about reading Calvin, Calvin's Institutes. Yeah, talk to these two, because they're reading Calvin's Institutes together, and it's, actually, it's, I've always wanted to read Calvin's Institutes, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. Calvin's Institutes? Um, he writes in support, I mean, he, it's a commentary kind of on Habakkuk, and it's just beautifully done. He explains Habakkuk really beautifully, yeah. And there's so. a series, um, if they want to study good theology, books of theology, it's called The Good Portion. Have you heard of it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But women should definitely, there. you know, um, I think it's R.C. Sproul who has said, everyone is a theologian, yep. and it's true. Even your non-Christian friends out there, they are theologians. They have a theology. They have a doctrine of God in their heads, in their hearts. And um, so we, we're all theologians, and we live out that doctrine every day. And you can see them living it out. We need to live out who God is in our daily lives. And if you don't know who God is in detail... You just can't live it out um, very well in your life. 
So, and plus, it's just a joy. Um, so read, read these books. I think you really will delight in the doctrines of God. When I, I always tell my authors and I tell other people, when I've been editing these books, there are times when I read and I just go, oh, God, you are so good. And I just put the book down and I worship. And what that looks like is I just think about that doctrine and I think, you are so great. What did, how did John Piper just de- define worship? Um, okay, okay. Um, I think it was, it was John Piper saying that worship is placing supreme value on something. And we do that in our lives every day. So what's your supreme value And if you place, you know, when you place supreme value on something, what do you do? You look at it like, think about the woman who gets engaged, right? What does she do with her ring? Look at this. Look at how it shines. Oh, this is so beautiful, right? It's very valuable to her. That's what we do with God when we worship him. We look at him. We contemplate who he is. And it's just, it'll bring more joy to your heart than anything else, and it'll scare all the idols away. Well, you have been an example of one who has worshipped the Lord and who I desire to emulate and always have, Carrie. It's just a blessing to be able to share her with you all, and um, I just, we're thankful for your labors to bring us back this weekend and help us to have joy while we wait upon the Lord, because one day we will gather before the throne together to glorify and to truly worship in spirit and in truth. So it's a wonderful thing. Amen. So thank you. Yeah. Can I just address this yeah, one question? This one is about suicide. And I know some of you have family members um, who have committed suicide. And I feel this deeply because it could be, I mean, this could happen to us. And what I've done is try to think through, what if that actually does happen? How am I possibly going to ever deal with that and I think that I will be in pain for the rest of my life if it happens but I know that nothing can thwart God and if Andrew is a believer and he's God's child nothing can take that away and um, we had some boys some teenage boys actually drowned um, at UCCD they were they were swimming in a pool with some other teenagers. A group of women were together from our church, and these boys drowned. It was horrible. They were in the same family. And the way I thought through that and the way I counseled the mother through it was, if these boys are believers, then praise God, they're in heaven with the Lord. If they weren't believers, even if they had lived until 70 or 80 years old, they weren't going to be believers. It's not like that thwarted God's plans for them, right? So, um, so if, if you rely on God's sovereignty and his goodness, then um, just keep going back there. Instead of even, you don't even need to figure out um, whether this person was a believer or not. I mean, the two cases that I've heard, these were professing believers, And I very much believe that that suicide is a sin, but Jesus saves us from all of our sins. And so I wouldn't even 
have to figure out in your mind. You can't, that, it's, like, it's like I said, providence is read backward, and it's not until heaven that we're going to know everything, right? So you don't need to go there. Um, you can rely on, the, and you can trust that God is sovereign and he is good. That's what I would say to that.